just like, uh, how do we open it up? How do we open it up? All right. So everybody, welcome back. This is our classic discussion episode where me and David hope to disagree in the hopes of, uh, <laughs> in the hopes of building a, a more genuine Judaism for all sides. I don't think we need to hope to disagree. I think we can get that done. <laughs> you think that's going to, I don't know. To Phil and I was pretty, I was pretty close to your. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'll find, uh, we'll find some discrepancies. All right, fine. I think women should wear film. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably going to happen. Um, okay. So you want to, how do you want to get this started? You want to, you want to start with the question and then just see where it takes us. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. You want to ask the question or should I ask it? Well, I don't have him here, so you're going to have to ask it. Oh, he's going to use the logic game on me. Okay. Okay. All Actually, right. I do have him over here. It's me. fine. I got you. So the first question we're going to be talking about is what specific, I- what specific idea from our delving into the history and evolution of tefillin stood out most to you and why? Well, I think the, the whole discussion about, you know, whether or not Tefillin had, you know, existed from Sinai or there was a later uh, invention or, or, or whatever, you know, I don't, I, I never heard anything like that before. So I, that, that was what stood out the most to me. Um, I mean, at this point, I still, you know, I, most of the commentaries, you know, disagree vehemently with it. But I just the fact that that was even an opinion was very new to me. Right. So I'm assuming you were referring specifically to the Rashbam and not the historians. I'm assuming. That. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really care for archaeological um, uh, evaluations of uh, religious history. I mean, they can give you something, but, you know, there's a, sometimes a little bit of uh, over extrapolation from minute details. Fair enough. Uh, I'm assuming I, I feel like you're referring to the, the bones of shellfish on mountaintops. A little bit in your head, but okay, fine. <laughs> uh, what was that from? <laughs> your book, your grandfather's book. Oh, that's right. Self-plug. Yeah. <laughs> what was your grandfather's name? David Brown? Yep. That, that, that's what it was. Oh, wow. So you're named after your grandfather. That is correct. We're not Sparty, so we only name after dead people. Whoa, what are you talking about? We don't that's name after a life. That's an interesting custom we, could, we, we might at some point discuss. We don't name people after live people. Friends don't do that? Do we, oh, no. My, my first cousin literally just did that a week ago. There you go. Yep, I bit my own tongue. Okay. Great. That's for sure a podcast discussion. You know, Sephardi versus Ashkenazi tradition, where it split off and what the differences are, where the similarities. That's not only a, a future episode. That's like a future series. It's true. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, I think we should. I think we should definitely focus on that. But okay, so this is what's interesting. Too racially charged for the current climate. Well, first of all, everything's too racially charged for the current climate. Uh, but what's it called? Um, great. Now I have to edit things out. That's fun. The uh, I think that was pretty innocuous. Yeah, we could leave that in. I don't know. I was getting offended by that. Yeah, that's true. Like nobody's gonna get offended. Like, oh, that's racist. Like, um, but all right, so. I guess what's interesting to me is like I kind of going into these types of discussions and assuming what's kind of interesting is that, you know, growing up Orthodox, I pretty much can assume what any rabbi, take me to the room of any classic rabbi of any shul and I could probably tell you what spiel he's going to give on the Parsha. And I'm sure you can do uh, pretty much the same thing because 
we know the first Rashi and the first Parsha, and it's it's not like that. It, it's uh, it's yeah, things like, can get a little bit um, dry, repetitive. Right. So it's interesting to me is that I thought that was just an orthodox trope, but I guess going into going into being a little bit more uh, open to the history and the background of everything, I kind of see where historians fall into the same trap of, like I said in the previous episode, equating the idea of science and, well, if you want to call history a science, (laughs) oh my God, I'm going to get so much hate for that. Uh, Definitely. And that's one thing we definitely disagree on. I don't consider uh, history a science. I don't know if anybody really does. What what do you mean by that? No, so I, I'm just saying, I, I was saying that in, in uh, not in, in deference to what you were saying, but actually in support of that, like, you know, history isn't a solid science the same way uh, you, can, you can say that biology is a solid science. Right, because we can't do any experiments on history. It was just, we could just argue about what happened. Right, exactly. So, but what's interesting to me is like these historians seem to fall into the same trope of, oh, you know, science or history, quote unquote, is is uh, is meant to is meant to disprove religion you know I, i've seen this there was a book i forgot what it's called it was such a good book um it was a book about this one of the scientists who was there at the discovery of the big bang theory and when he said basically if i got the details right i really hope i did um, because i don't want this to be hearsay but i remember this vividly he said that when people discovered that there was a beginning to the earth, which by the way, was not the contention before the big bang theory for all you people who think the big bang theory goes against uh, the Torah. It does not. Uh, And I'm kind of tired of hearing it, but uh, I mean, I know what you're thinking, but I'm saying like, yeah, yeah, I know, you know what I'm thinking. uh, Okay. Before the big bang theory, science was way more against the Torah than it was post big bang theory. Fair enough. Like way, it's yeah, not even the idea was either that like the world had always existed, mm-hmm. right? And what was the other? It was pretty much just that it was Aristotle. Uh, I think it was Aristotelian, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty. That 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 makes problems, you know, God wise. Yeah. Know? So you know, and he, this scientist who was there at the discovery of the Bing Bang, noticed that like you know, this is a monumental scientific discovery. Can you imagine discovering the Big Bang? You would think that you and all your colleagues would just be jumping for joy saying, wow, we made this huge I'm discovery. I'm so curious. What does that mean, the discovery? How do you discover a theory? Uh, well, it's not, really lo- it's not really a theory any longer, but theories are, again, uh, are not just simply like, oh, it's probably like this. It's based on a lot of evidence, and, there's a, you know, and it's based on the evidence at hand. Let's put it that way. Um, sure. but, but one second. So the, like, imagine you just dis- like this, discovered this idea of a big bang you discovered the the beginning of the universe that that really intense uh intense um there's a really intense heat signature billions and billions of light years away whatever that means and those physicists of you who are listening are probably just like well this guy doesn't know what he's talking about probably right i i'm not a not a physicist but from what i understand these people these scientists when they were confirmed the big bang theory there wasn't a huge leap for joy in the advancement of humankind towards science uh, the, the scientist who authored this book exclaimed that his colleagues were all just upset and disappointed. Like they were kind of just like, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, a feeling of, Oh my gosh, does this prove creationists? Like, you know, does this, does this, does this prove the idea that there was a beginning? And it's like, uh, look, I'm not saying that that's the situation now. I'm sure quantum physics and quantum mechanics have found a way to go back to the Aristotelian model of, the world always existed through, you know, infinite dimensions. And, you know, we can talk about the infinite multiverse theory, one of these episodes, and the fact that it doesn't account for paradoxes is a paradox. 
anyways. It's really count um, for anything. It's pure conjecture just based on nothing. Well, it's based, it's based on Rick and Morty. No, Rick and Morty is not it's not <laughs> even smart. It's just people saying, Oh, look, he made a nihilistic joke. Oh my god, he must be intelligent. Like that's not, not how you I don't know, just the whole idea of, of like multiverses is like in theory it could be true, but based on I mean, what evidence? What what is there? Like, oh well there are wormholes and we don't know where they go. I'm like, why don't you go in there and find out? And then come back oh, and tell me. You know why. <laughs> okay, you know so why. until somebody goes through a wormhole, finds an alternate dimension, or comes back with some evidence of it, I'm pretty skeptical. And I think most people should be. Okay, fine. Look, I, I agree with you. But the, the point being that science has also fallen. Why did I start all this? Basically, I thought orthodoxy was guilty of being repetitive. And, you know, science was this... Pro- science, I, I would say... Uh, Objective. Is like- Right, like, you know, this objective, like, progressive kind of, kind of thing, which is kind of paradoxical if you think about it. Uh, but the, the when I saw, like, you know, I was going into the Tefillin episode and I was, I was like, expecting, like, people are definitely going to say that Tefillin wasn't around at the time until, like, later times. I don't know why, but I just feel it. And I was proven right almost immediately. So I, I'll tell you the truth. I still don't think that's a reason to discount, you know, discount historians. I'm sh- uh, among the among the among the weeds, you find the no among the chaff. Of course, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, no one would well, no one would be brazen enough to just come out and say that they're wrong about everything. It's just that I think maybe we give them a little too much credit, and we don't uh, we don't think critically enough about what they say, and we just you know they say it, so it must be true. Uh, where, where do we get such blind faith in scientists that, you know, we don't have such blind faith in really anything else, but if a guy in a white coat said it and he has one peer reviewed study, then it's over. He, exactly. It must be true. Well, yeah, you see, that's like to the common, like that's to common people. That's how they'll look at it. You know, like I, I'll, it's very difficult to get good scientific data. Like you really have to be in the field, like, you know, Yeah. and, uh, but what's it called? So, you know, like that's, so what stood out to me most, I guess that's what I was trying to say. It didn't really stand out to me that, that you know, Tefillin could have been not observed from the time of, time of Harsinai. I think what most stood out to me and what still stands out to me like every, every day is the idea that Tefillin, I think it's just a unique observance. Like, you know, Jews do weird stuff. Like, I'll grant you that. Yeah, this is one of our weirder, one of our weirder things. It's not only one of our weirder things, but I think that it's one of our weirder things where like, it's almost it's one of the easier things to identify with a, with a higher, with a higher plane of this, you know, of living, of existence, like Sukkot, like, let's say we're coming up with the holiday of huts, right? Unless you know the history, you're just going to be like, why are these penguin dressed people like, you know, living in huts in the, in the middle of like the, in the, of the fall, like what's going on? Uh, well, you won't find us in Florida because everybody just goes inside after Kiddush because it's like about 105 <laughs> degrees here every day. Right. I, f- I forgot about that. Uh, and by in New York, you probably won't also because by us it always rains without a fail. Yeah, it's because God hates New York. Hey, listen, man. <laughs> For some reason, I don't doubt that too much. Yeah. But uh, we just hate on New York in this podcast. Well, I, I, everybody should hate on New York. It's, there's nothing. There's, there's not much going for it. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff. I, this is not really podcast <laughs> material. This yeah. is more. Uh, it's coming from private. Uh, Right. Yeah, not, not that private because the term you just used, uh, relax, buddy. <laughs> it just means uh, where nobody can hear you. Yeah, yeah, sure, buddy, sure, it's fine. Um, I think that it's funny because I, I texted, I texted you a, uh, a rubric, a structure for this episode, like you know, five questions, 
And you kind of said, I think it was question number four that I, that I asked, if it were proven beyond a doubt that tefillin were not worn until at least the Hellenistic age or the first monarchy, um, how would that change your view of, you know, tefillin? And I think that you kind of addressed it a little bit because you said it stood out to you. Like, you know, the, the, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if, if it was discovered, if like, if that was, let's say in a hypothetical scenario that, that someone was able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, I would have to completely change the way I thought about it. It would have to be a whole different outlook because the way I'm looking at it now is that, you know, this is, you know, just as part of, as much, you know, as legitimate mitzvah, a physical mitzvah as a lulav is, you know, that's written in the Torah, all sorts of things like that. So if somebody told me that, you know, someone told you that, you know, a lulav, the idea of, a, of actually waving a lulav only became a real thing, you know, 200 years ago, you know, you start to, I guess, think very differently. I don't really know what I would think. I would have to, I would have to start from, from the beginning, but gladly they haven't and won't prove that. So, interestingly, it's almost been proven beyond a doubt that the esrog was not what was what has been used about a, about earlier than a thousand years ago. That's that's somewhat believable. But that's not even that's not even like a problem because the Torah says pre-etzadah. Torah says pre-etzadah, right? That's not even like a problem. No one in the Torah doesn't say a fruit of citrus, like. Right. But oh my God, if you say that, anyways. Um, I think, though, what's important to note here about like this, this, in, uh, the correlation of these two questions of what stands out to you and what would what would change had you found out that tefillin was worn at a later date than Sinai, that the minhag, that the custom, the ritual was adapted by the sages. That would just make it into like a rabbinical institute of mitzvah and, and, and completely out of the uh, its current context, which is you know this is biblical. Right. So again, I think that the, I mean, the Jews have adopted a policy that um, when sages, not when, not when you're local Orthodox rabbi, okay, I'm sorry, the sages are not like or, or local. When the Gemara was finished being written, that was, that's it. Uh, actually, the uh, Gaonim, one, one or two errors. Yeah, there was some, right. Gaonim issued some, just issued some rulings. There's some of their stuff written in various parts of the Gemara, but most of the, for the most part, it's at the end of the conclusion of the writing of the Talmud, that was the end of you know, sages establishing stuff. Right. So um, even, I got to say, like, even until the, let's say the 20th century, I think we can think of some pretty big people. I'm For sorry, sure. 21st century, we just don't cut it. But uh, like, I, I can think of two names that you'll definitely not agree with me on, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, maybe I can think of one of them. Go ahead. Well, one of those are Nelf Weinberg. I wouldn't disagree with you on that. Yes, and the other one. Is it Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo? It is Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo. I, I can't agree or disagree because I don't know enough about from what I've seen. You know, well, this is, let's, 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 let's move on. Right. Okay. So uh, anyways, I think what's interesting about these questions is in the circles that I live in, right? So I just had a conversation with someone and actually he listens to this. Okay, fine. But now that I said, you know what? Okay. I just had a conversation with somebody and I kind of realized aha, this is an all or nothing type of mistake that most people tend to make. So you see, I think the mentality where I grew up, I don't know if this is the mentality by you, but uh, when I grew up and like, especially the, uh, even some younger guys, they were saying like, oh, these rabbis make everything up. Like, you know, they just like, they want money, which by the way, nowadays I, I don't disagree with you with. Like, I think that- I think Who's that making was, money being a rabbi? No, 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 no. They use their name to make money. Like mm -hmm. I just saw, I just saw on my rabbi's WhatsApp status, Oh, you know, my son, my son uh, makes sukkahs, you know, uh, like, what's it called? Uh, he'll take good care of you. And I'm like, 
listen, you might be a good rabbi, but like, I don't know anything about your son. Why you're just well, like, he's advertising his service. I think it's within his, uh, within his rights as a Yeah, human. but I think, I think that his students, because he's their rabbi, will use his son as a, what's it called? Which is like, listen, I, I'm just interested in, did, did this rabbi look at the work his son did before he posted this? No, he's a regular father trying to get work for his kid, just like anybody else. You know, I'm not saying anybody else is better off doing that. I don't think that's okay. Like, I think that especially if you're a rabbi, you shouldn't be doing that. But whatever, fine. They're not the purpose. The purpose of this is people tend to look at it as, oh, the rabbis make everything up. To me, it's so much deeper than that. Like, you know, and I recognize this because of Cardozo and because of Rabbi Noah Weinberg. So the Chachamim, even if they made things, made things that we have to observe nowadays, that wasn't necessarily observed in their day. They did it to preserve an entire nation and an entire community because they understood the value that comes from being in a community. And like, like to fill in, let's say they instituted the entire ritual. Let's say it was completely made up. You want to tell me that the tefillin has not aided greatly in the keeping together of the Jewish community in the past millennia. It's it's one of the one of the most the it, it, people in the okay and I'm going to be that guy, uh, people in the Holocaust, literally, uh, and I'm not saying that this was like you know I'm not I can't judge if whether this was right or wrong but they literally gave up their lives to to put on its fillin, because they felt such a kinship to it, and you could say oh this is what religion does it forces you to give up your life. Well, why don't you read Viktor Frankl's maps? Uh, uh, what's it called? Man's search for maps meaning. of meaning. Man's search for meaning. No, not maps of meaning. <laughs> maps of meaning is Jordan B. Peterson's book, which is unbelievable—an unbelievable read. But um, it's called. So I, I would agree with that to a certain point. I just have—I'm just not okay with doing something that was. I Meaning, if the rabbis instituted it for you know because it makes the community stay together, and it was a post. You know, some uh, not not derived from the Torah in any way. I don't think I'd take it nearly as seriously because. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, sorry, go on. I don't, I just, uh, meaning it, what you're saying is true, that the, a lot of our traditions are very important just for keeping us together. It's for sure true. But that in itself doesn't make it a valid tradition. If we have a tradition, uh, you know, of ha- eating cholent, you know, I mean, you could argue that it's a halachic thing. You're supposed to have hot food on the Shabbos day, whatever. Let's, let's that aside. It, it, it changes the very essence of what it is. It, it goes from, a biblical obligation that God said X, Y, Z, do that. And then it becomes a, this is a nice thing to do. And then it loses all of its importance. And it so just becomes actually, a nice tradition. This is interesting. This is an interesting point of contention between me and you, because to me, it's the, it's the precise opposite. It's the relationship between God and the, let's, let's put it this way. You know what? It's the relationship between God and the people that to me makes Judaism so special. But to, like, it's not the, it's not the, okay. So first of all, what is an obligation from God, right? Like that's a whole podcast discussion, blah, blah, blah. But like, if the, if I don't believe that there is an element in the obligations of God that I don't believe that there's, that the elements of an obligation of God are simply that they're obligations from God. I think that, and I think that you would agree with me on this. There are elements of keeping a community together. There are elements of, you know, in, instituting mercy and, you know, kindness and this and that. You know, and right, but the parameters of which are always established. Meaning, if we would make them up as we go along, I mean, they they might be well intentioned, they might do good things, but I mean, I don't really do any of the stuff that I do 
you know, because it's good for the community. I mean, I, that would be nice of me. I'm sure I can go do things individually that would be good for people in my community. But in terms of my day-to-day -day life, me personally, if someone says, hey, this is a nice tradition, I'd say, cool, enjoy your tradition. I'm just going to do what I think that, you know, okay, is so important. And, 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 and so if, if it loses that, that, that uh, the real mitzvah, stops being a real mitzvah, then it loses, then because maybe I'll put on film once a week and I'll put on film every now and then. It doesn't become such a thing like, I have to put on film today because that's what people, the people who every, every single day for their entire lives, I, I got to go put on film. It's a very important thing for me. It's, and if it was just a tradition, you know, it wouldn't be taken so seriously. So I think that there's a difference between just a tradition and an institution of the sages. Okay, because an institution of the sages is, we consider biblically right. equivalent. Right, right? because there is, there is biblical uh, dispensation for uh, rabbinical uh, institutions. Right, like you can say that, like you can say that, officially speaking, the kippah, the yaramulka, the skull camp is a tradition but the way it's observed now is observed like a rabbinical institution that's true you know and it's I, interesting you know what the vilna gon said about yarmulkes just by the way in his time hmm. he said uh people who wear yarmulkes are uh, bali gaiva walking really? around showing everybody look at me i fear god look at me he no you don't prideful? i'm pretty sure he called them bali gaiva he called them prideful wow. people they're arrogance and that you're walking around showing everybody oh everybody see my little hat on my head i fear god do you fear god because in, in, in the Vilna times, people, it wasn't really a custom, so people weren't wearing it. So when some people would, you're like, you know, prove yourself. You don't just walk around with like, I'm the, you know, you can't, that's not really how. So how this we, is kind of interesting because this is the idea that I think Jordan Peterson puts forth quite well and probably the best that I've ever heard it. When people ask him, um, you know, do you believe in God? Uh, he says, um, I act as though he exists. Well, at first he says, well, I don't know what you mean by believe, and I don't know what you mean by God, and the, the likely... Well, it depends what you mean by... Exactly, right? So it depends on what you mean by... Uh, uh, right, okay? But he did give a whole lecture about... He also said at a, at a university with Prager, he said, he, at, a, at Prager University, he said in a lecture, who dares say that they believe in God? And I'm sure you can look this up on YouTube. It's just one of the most fascinating lectures. He said, you know, you know what it means to believe in God? You know what it means to walk around with that constant awareness of morality? You know how few people do that? By the way, I'm including myself in this. In as much as I think I, I, am, I have more of an obligation to be aware of my morality based on all of the readings and all of the research that I purport to do and all of this, like, you know, I, 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 I have to have this morality in mind. And to say I believe in God is terrifying. Like to me, even like I'll tell you right now, people ask me to believe in God, I kind of freeze up. I'm just like, I, I don't know. Like, I well, you have to know what you know what they're asking. They're not asking the Peterson question. They're asking very simply, do you think there's a God or do you think there isn't a God? But I don't even I don't even like their question because of course I'm you don't like their question because it's it it, it it just you don't go anywhere with a question like that. It's true. No, but there I I mean this in the in the most serious way. If the my if Maimonides proclaimed that nobody can we can only know what God isn't and not what God is then all the more so these people who ask, do you believe in God, have no idea what God they're referring to. Of course not. No, they have no clue. But so that's why, it, like it, that's why it's such a tricky question, because what are you really asking? And that's why you be, when someone asks a question like that, you kind of you know, morph into Jordan Peterson, like, well, well, what do you really mean? You know, say what you mean. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, I mean, to live up to. But 
I don't know. There's, okay, so let's let's shift this back to tefillin, yeah. I guess, because what's why are we saying all this? Tefillin inscribed in the arm and the head are verses that correlate to the Exodus and that correlate to our you know our relationship with God. So they, I think that what the sages did so wisely, if I may add, is they knew that what binds people the most, what binds people really well. To quote an awful series, La Havdil of Game of Thrones, season eight was awful. I don't care any of you what will say it was awful. Season eight, where where this uh, I, I think you mean six? No, I think six. There was no eight. I think it finished with six. Oh, it was six? My yeah, bad. it was six, and it was trash. It was garbage. You know why? Because they wanted to go make a. Uh, they got hired to make Star Wars, so they really? just like yeah, they got hired to make Star Wars, and they just or, or some. I think it was Star Wars or something. Aren't even good. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so they rushed Game of Thrones so they can go make, you know, and ru- they wanted to ruin Star Wars and Game of Thrones all within a few months. So yeah. congrats. Congrats to David. Kill, kill two magnificent birds with one ugly stone. Uh, what's it called? <sighs> but, okay, anyways, so there, there was a line there that said that what, what binds people the most? You're like, you know, what, what, what connects people the most? And, you know, uh, I think it was Tyrion. Uh, I don't know who it was. Tyrion, Tyrion said that what connects people most is stories, right? And so, you know, the, the sages were very wise. They took the, the I guess you can say, uh, the, the foundation of Jewish thought, which is a connection to God in everything, meaning in our tilling of the land or, you know, in our uh, picking of the fruit, in our lying down and in our rising up. Constantly. Constantly, right? And in the story of our exodus, and they put it into like these small boxes that are a daily reminder to us. And it's kind of, even if we only wear it for the mornings now, unfortunately, because I mean, I, I would, I would love to have the courage to wear it the entire day. Um, they, they did this amazing institution whereby they've not only saved a, saved, let's say a community, they've also saved a, an entire mindset by my estimation. You know, like they, I don't, I don't know if the Torah would have been preserved as much without tefillin. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I don't, I think to fill Why do you think that? It's interesting. Why, why do you think that? Well, look, like the, l- let's look at the, let's look at the sitter, right? Um, I, like, like I told you, I have a very hard time praying the entire thing in the sitter. I feel kind of ashamed because I just don't have come on everything. And, uh, but what was interesting to me about the sitter is I was always, I was always asking like, why did the Chachamim choose these specific things? Reading through Tanakh, I understand perfectly why they chose these specific things. A lot of things in Tanakh are, are very, in the Hebrew Bible, are very complicated. They're just, they're not for the average person. If you read Proverbs every day, um, you'll go insane. Like, it's because it's just so demanding. You know, people think the 613 mitzvahs are demanding. Those are just basic precepts for daily life. Okay, like, they're, they're really not that crazy if you think about it. People say, oh, 613. The vast, vast majority of them are, uh, we can't even do anymore. Yeah, we, we observe, like, what, 15 a day? And I don't know, like it's. I, I think I think I I counted them up. I think there's only I think maybe like sixty that are still relevant. Sixty mitzvahs, I say. I think. 60. Right, but I'm saying what we do on a daily basis, like. On a daily basis. Um, that could be a whole discussion in and of itself. Uh, I don't really know. Uh, oh, fine, but you get you know, basically the point being that, uh, to, um, like the sitter has all these specific texts that correlate to people that correlate to the average person, right? And it kept the community together. But I think that, you know, just a, a daily prayer isn't really enough. There has to be some, like, I, I don't know, like, the Torah reading itself is very powerful. But this tefillin, I don't know why, but I think that, like, this unique religious artifact, let's put it that way, because I can't think of another term for it. But this unique 
um, physical manifestation of a spiritual idea is so not like anything else in the world. And like we just talked about, not at all like amulets. Oh my God. Right. It's, it, it binds us in such a way that nothing else could because there are still... <laughs> Wow. Because there are still people who read from scrolls. You know, there's still communities who read from scrolls. There's still communities who gather. But that it is this, let's, let's, put a, let's put a modern twist on it, this quote-unquote irrational thing uh, that keeps us all together for so long, right? And arguably for the better, because like uh, if you look at the demographics, Jews usually build up communities that are, you know, very supportive and, you know, this and that, like to each other. And, uh, and by the way, volunteer ambulances are, made, uh, I think the majority of volunteer ambulances are Jewish. Yep. And I'm just saying like, you have, there's no telling what you could do with you when you build a community. And this idea of keeping a community together through spiritual, like, you know, kind of spirit, spiritually representative moral ideas like tefillin are unbelievable. Like, the, like uh, what's it called? Like Jordan Peterson says, before you criticize the room, go and clean your room. Before you criticize the world, go and Set clean your room. house in perfect order. Before you criticize. The, exactly, by the way. Exactly. It's, uh, oh, like, like Shlomo Amalek says, lazy bones, go look at the ant. And learn from its ways. Like, I hate you know, that translation. It doesn't say anything about bones. Just as lazy one. <laughs> yeah, but like... It, Colloquial. Yeah. Like medieval banter, it probably meant lazy bones, you know? I don't know. I feel like we have really interesting ideas about how people talked. And if we went back, I feel like they would we'd be like, how do you fancy? And they'd be like, bro, what are you talking about? Um, I would like to counter with read any of Shakespeare's plays and tell me that it's too crazy. <laughs> Shakespeare. Ugh, Shakespeare. You egg... Don't get me started on Shakespeare. I'm, I'm, There's literally a sentence in Shakespeare that goes, you egg. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. Like you, you're, you're, uh, it means you idiot, but whatever. Like, it means you idiot, but like, yeah. you egg. I couldn't like, find any cross comparative text that says anything similar to that. Fair enough. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting. The, the, the point that you're making about, because I mean, people don't really think about Tefillin as a, as a, a, a communal thing. You know, it, it's, it's a mitzvah upon individuals. You know, there are lots of mitzvahs that are incumbent upon communities and, and, and uh, you know, neighborhoods. There's rules about, you know, lots of rules about Erevin and, and joining together to create, you know, neighborhoods by, you know, keeping your bread in that guy's lawn and that guy, you're, you know, that's, you know, a whole, a whole thing on itself. But Tefillin has never really been considered a, a communal mitzvah. It's, it's, it's interesting how... It's kind of like your own, I just thought of this just now, it's like your own version, your own arc in a way, meaning the Jews in, in, in the desert, you know, they, they had their sacred items that they carried with them. You know, they had their, the, the Mishkan, right? The tabernacle that they would assemble and, and, you know, disassemble and carry it. And, you know, they had, you know, the, you know, inside they had the, the a box, you know, the ark with the, the tablets in there, with the broken tablets and a different ark with the unbroken tablets. So there's a big idea of, of having a responsibility to take care of sacred items. I think that, that it, 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 it's a very powerful thing when you're entrusted with something that's sacred. It, I think it gives you a, a, a sense of responsibility that's very important. I think everybody, everyone's got their parents filling and everybody knows like how to take care of them, how to, you know, 
don't drop them. You know, everyone's very careful about their children. I think that I think that's a, a big thing. And if you drop exists. them, put money in charity, you know, or fast for the day, whatever. Or get them checked, and then you could put money in charity. <laughs> okay. But yeah, right. no, it's 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 um, it's just an interesting point. See, this is what Rabbi Ibn Pakida said: delve into tefillin. There's no there's no end to what you'll find. Mm. Well said. So I'm, I'm like these ideas, you know, I think we're, we can only capable of recognizing them because we're very aware of psychology in this situ- in this generation. And I think that this idea that we just put forth is a very psychological one. It, it shows that like, while this may not have been instituted as a communal, and by the way, I would argue that it, it probably was uh, a, uh, because the sages in my, in my view were very focused on keeping the Jews together as this community of more. Well, that's if we're playing under the assumption that it was an inst- a later institution and not yeah, yeah. like You're most right. people say. You're right. I'm sorry. Uh, but we're pl- if, I'm, if we're playing on that assumption, yeah. um, I would, I would suggest that it, it, it even in, at the inception was considered a, something to keep the community together, but we're only, it was never really specified because it became very personal. Like you said, like, you know, we have to take care of our tefillin and this and that. And to me though, if you think about it, this unique identifier of Judaism is much more powerful than a Yaramulka or a Kippah, you know, like it's because it's sacred. Right. It's like, you can, you can like, you know, kind of put it in the laundry machine. You can drop it on the floor. You don't like you kiss it, but like whatever. Right. Yeah. You kiss your Yaramulka and you drop it. Uh, I think so. I think I'm I think not so. sure. There are people who do that. Yeah. I'm not, I don't remember dropping my yarmulke recently, but I'll keep, I'll keep in mind for it next time. I, I believe I do. I got the <laughs> clip, so they didn't really fall off, but. Oh, Mr. Showoff. I don't, uh, I don't kiss it when, it when it hits the floor. Oh, Mr. Showoff, Mr. Showoff. There's nothing, there's nothing sacred about the yarmulke. You know, it's, it, it, it's only sacred in that Jewish traditions that have been, you know, done for a long time, have, they gain a certain status in terms of like, being authentic, you know, something is done by enough Jew. For example, you know the evening prayer, Mariv, right? The Gemara and and Gemara Paskins that it's it's a uh, optional prayer, and the Rambam says it's an optional prayer. But since you know the Jews over many generations acted as if it was an obligation, it is now upon us as an obligation. How could all of our previous you know all of our ancestors have treated it with such seriousness, and then we would go and discard it? We we don't we don't do things that way. Right. So I think, um, I, I think what's interesting though, is, uh, this also kind of goes back to the all or nothing, you know, the rabbis are making up stuff. Again, these things are very, very well thought out. Like they weren't just like spewing things like, I think there should be an evening prayer. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't like this angry dude who just like, it wasn't wanted... your rabbi from high school. Right. It, it wasn't the guy who took out the belt. I mean, Jewish schools don't do that. Anyways, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they. I'm sure they. They took out their belts. Everybody did. The whole world was whipping everybody who was, you know, under the age of, I don't know, twenty. Yeah, but uh, what's it called? <laughs> um, oh, what was I saying? Um, I, okay, so this, uh, you're saying I was. Uh, it was very well thought out. Yeah, so the, these things were all well thought out. Like it wasn't by some old man who was angry at the kids at his front yard and he wanted to punish them by extra prayers. It was the opposite. When you see it first introduced, the Talmud explicitly says, we're going to make this as the, uh, we're going to make, they say a very radical statement. Do you remember this? They said, and anybody who doesn't pray the evening prayer gets the death penalty. Oh, that was for, that was for someone who uh, doesn't say Krishma before, uh, before midnight because he might fall asleep. Oh, okay, fine. Okay. No, it was for Aravit. 
No, it was talking it, it, that Bryce included talking about Davani Mara, but it was focused on on Kriyashma. Okay, fine. So, but but what's interesting is like, and so somebody, <laughs> another rabbi retorted with the I, I guess the modern day version would be like, "Are you serious, bro?" Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's what he said, and I'm saying Lahavdil Harbi Avdalos. He said, yeah. well, like, you know, keep it on the DL. But basically, otherwise, people won't, you know, people won't be observing it. And they'll come to do frivolities at night. The idea was, don't just come home from work, you know, and like, only, like look, I'm not going to say that you shouldn't watch, you know, you shouldn't watch shows and whatever, because I think that there is some benefit to TV. But, but not Game of Thrones. I regret watching that. I regret watching that so much. All of my life. For so many reasons. First of all, it's just wildly, wildly inappropriate. Uh, but if we can excuse my poor decision to go through the whole show, it's not worth it at the end because the ending sucks. Yes, all of those of you who were wise enough to wait until the series was over to binge it and then decided not to because of all you heard, you have. Uh, I'm sorry if you suffered any heartache from not knowing, but uh, you were better off, trust me. Yeah, try Solar Opposites. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, that's actually a pretty good show. Uh, anyways, the... Okay, so now... Well, let's, uh, okay, right. So the idea was you shouldn't just watch a show when you get home and like, you know, only do that and fall asleep to a show. But you should have some spirituality even at the end of your day, like, you know, because, and I think that Maimonides even takes it so far, correct me if I'm wrong about who says this. So he takes it so far as to say that the the true learning that is retained is one, learning that's done at night. Is that correct? I, I'm, I'm sure the Rambam said it, but it's in the Gemara. Oh, it's in the Talmud, fine. So then the Rambam. The, the Gemara in Tainus says that, that, I mean, this isn't that, that exact statement, but talks about this point of the year when the nights um, start to get longer. Oh, okay. Okay, fine. It so says that a person who increases his learning during these, at night, during this time of the year, he increases his lifespan and vice versa. Okay. So, yeah, you know, interesting. And this was the idea. It was never that, like, oh, you know, we, we just like people to suffer. <laughs> Like, you know, like I, uh, which by the way, growing up with all these regulations, I pretty much was always sure that it was, but, uh, it was, it was really just to keep people from, you know, being, let's, let's put it simply simpletons. Okay. Like, you know, like, let's, let's just put it how it is. Um, I don't know how it far certainly more, doesn't stop. It certainly doesn't stop people from being simpletons. I was just about to say that. Yeah, exactly. Now, nowadays it doesn't stop, but it definitely, le- it contributes to less people being simpletons than otherwise, I believe. Yeah. Or at least it contributed to that. I don't know. Yeah, about- I mean, it really all depends on if you decide to delve deeper into what it is that you're doing. You know, if we're just doing things and we're just, you know, it's written down in, 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 in it's been codified, it's in the Shulchan Aruch, it's in the Gemara, so we have to do it. Well, sure, you can have that mentality, but I mean, it's going to be a pretty miserable existence. You know, there's a certain point where you do things because you have to. And then there's a point where you do things because you want to. And that's, you know, when you become a person, when you're doing things that you believe in and what you want to do, that's when you have your own opinions. If you're just doing what you have to do, then it's just, I don't know, it's a very sorry existence. I don't know who would want to live like that. This is such a great transition because you, like, you know, you said you have to believe in it and, you know, not just do it because you have to do it. So building off of that idea, would you mind sharing something personal about the film that you think about when you put them on um, as well as some advice for people who are more interested in it? You know, like uh, let's say, let's say the Jew who's having trouble with tefillin or the Jew who like just puts on the tefillin and nothing gains nothing from it. Like what would you, what would you recommend or what have you done? Well, I wish I could say that I had a, you know, you know, well thought out intentions every time I put them on, but it's not always the case. There are many times I put them on and I'm just, I'm barely, you know, because it, it's difficult. The things like this that you do daily, they, they can become rote very, very easily. So 
Um, one of the things you can do is that if you look in most of the room, there's going there, there, in most prayer books, there's a, um, a paragraph, medium to long size paragraph before the bracha that you say on the tefillin. And it basically explains the whole mitzvah. It says, you know, we put these things on our arm, which, you know, and this box contains this, 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 and this. And the reason we put it on is because of this. And the one in our head contains X, Y, Z. You know, it basically just breaks the whole thing down. Now, the, the Shulchan Aruch says that, or the Mishnah Brewer says that, you know, you, you, you should have these things in mind 100% when you put them on. Um, and it's particular to tefillin more than other mitzvahs that you need to have the right intentions because tefillin is all about, right, it's, it's, Laos and Lizikaron, right? It's it's to remember and, and it's to it'd be a sign. And if you don't pay attention to it, then it's not really a sign. But I think the Mishnah Bruce said, if you just had the intention that you were doing a mitzvah, like that's enough. But ideally, you should have in mind, you know, the the things that I think that we 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 brought down some explanations in the um in the history, in the history version of this on the previous podcast. I think there's plenty of information out there. It's really just a question of going out and, and learning it. In terms of what to do, I think it's important to try to, to best your ability to not talk to, you know, at least excessively, you know, something while wearing film, things that don't have anything to do with, you know, matters of holiness. Just, you know, don't talk about business or, or, or sports or, you know, read the paper, you know, when you're wearing film you're you're focused on god if you want if 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 that means wearing them for less time then maybe that's maybe that's better for you you know you have to find it for yourself but certainly it's very important not to treat them lightly because if you treat them lightly then there'll be light in your eyes and you won't feel anything because you psych psychologically told yourself that these aren't important when you when you go against what the film are about and it's about that connection then you instead are doing something else completely you're telling yourself that everything about this, this film, that our connection is not really so important. We're not really. So one of the things you can also do is one of Mary Bam told me, try to, you know, even after davening, learn something, something small with the parents filling on, because, you know, it's all about Torah. Tefillin is all about our connection to God and, 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 you know, also connection to Torah, which is, you know, our connection to Hashem. So Torah and Tefillin uh, go very well together. Hmm. Interesting. I actually, I kind of do the reverse of that. I learned Torah right before because it helps my davening with the tefillin on them. So, it's 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 uh, cyclical. It all helps each other. Uh, but what's it called? Now I, I get that. I first of all, I think that's great advice because I think that incorporating some learning as well as some prayer. I think that learning always helps prayer. By the way, I don't think that it's uh, they're exclusive. Uh, they're not. I think that the more you know, or the more you understand, really the more it helps your mind be able to weave a web of precise prayers to God and not just... Yeah, it's the cross-referencing that makes things so... You know what I'm talking about? The right. mental, mental cross-referencing that you can do at a certain exactly. point, it's exactly. incredible. Right. It's, it's, it's just, it's really unparalleled that it's a certain extent. And, you know, to me, I think that... Uh, I think I showed you this once, but I, I have a very, like, specific kavana... I have a very specific thing that I think about when I put on tefillin. I have multiple specific things that I think about, but I try to do this every day. I sometimes fail, but I think that most of the time I succeed in thinking it. I don't know how many of the times I succeed in feeling it as much as I did the first time I thought of it. But this idea that but one day I just sat down and I was like, I just don't understand. Like, what, what are these tefillin? Like, it's literally just leather 
and inside the leather is parchment with God's name. Like, what am I doing? Why am I wrapping this around my arm and head? Like, you know, and I think that like somebody, everybody who takes their Judaism seriously will have a break, will have a nervous breakdown about these commandments, like once in their lifetime, at least. But like, you know, that could just spearhead them for a, for a while. So to me, it was like, okay, well, well let's think about it. Let, let's think about it. Um, uh, oh, oh, what's it called? Uh, how, do, how do you say it? Where, where there's like, a, you have like, everybody has a certain, a certain idea. Objectively? Archetypally. Uh, let's think of archetypally, right? So let's say that pieces of leather, right? What is that? That's dead animals, right? Like just, let's be honest, it's dead animals. And in, in a sense though, the animals aren't really dead. They're still like, they're being serviced through this. You know, like in a sense, like they're being, they're not alive. Like I wouldn't go so, so far as to say that, but they're something about their spirit lives on. Let's put it that way through the, through the tefillin. So to me, it's, it's a message that all you are at the end of the day as a human being is a dead animal. And what keeps you, what keeps your spirit alive afterwards oh, wow. with the hands of others is the way that you incorporate God's name within your, within your leather, so to speak, within your, within your skin. It's like, that's brilliant. And that works either uh, for the for the moral purposes or for the evil purposes. You can use the divi- name of divinity for its most evil peril, or you can use it for its most moral, uh, most moral, uh, you know, heights. Let's put it the virtues. So I think like, that's what I th- when I thought about it the first time. Like you know that that propelled me for like a solid week, and it still gets me going because like I know the idea is powerful, but. After a year and a half, it's just so hard to have this. Yeah, to constant, you need to constantly like refresh and renew. Yeah, it's diminishing returns, like to be honest. But there's also like if you're a Sephardi, I don't know how many straps you put on the arm. Do you put seven? Seven. Right. Seven. Okay, so you know there's this idea that with each strap, you should remember that you're concentrate. You're supposed to be wrapped around with thoughts of God each day of the week. You know, following in the ways of the three forefathers and the four foremothers. That's that's a that's a tongue twister. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, then there's the idea of this beautiful passage that we say when we wrap it around our finger. We say, It's from the prophet Hosea, or Hosea, I think. Uh, he says, And I will uh, betroth me forever, uh, or, and you will betroth me forever, and you will betroth me in righteousness and justice. And in kindness and uh, what is it in mercy and in a lot of and an abundant mercy and what is it? I don't remember. I don't, I don't... And you'll and you'll uh, betroth and I will betroth you in faith, um, and I will finally and I will finally know Hashem. I'll finally know the Lord. And that's just oh man, that that verse when I saw it in Tanakh in the context that it was set in, that verse already sounds beautiful if you get anybody other than me to read it with my voice, but it's. Just so beautiful, read in context in the prophets. Like, so to me, yeah, like, in Hosea, in Hosea, with the specific theme that's going on over there, it's definitely it's it's unbelievable. And you know this this idea that oh, like you know, all these traditions are so silly. Like that's I guess that's what we're trying to kind of mitigate over here. We're trying to get away from that. It's the idea that unfortunately, I think this is the case. That uh, I think that you'll agree with me on this. Tanakh is not emphasized enough we, we don't look at the source material enough like we treat the talmud too much as source material in my opinion it is source material but it's it's it's, it's secondary yes it's, 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 it's the ultimate commentary on the bible but if you haven't read it then what are you reading the commentary for right what are you like it's it's like reading uh, uh what's 
I was just gonna say it's like it's like reading a like a Yale University study on uh, on what's it called on um, thermodynamics. Thermodynamics without knowing anything about the field, like you're gonna be lost, on, or like let's say uh, particle physics, you're gonna be lost by this time you hear the word quark, and that's probably gonna be the first. Right. Thing exactly, you know? and it's actually worse when it comes to you know with with the Talmud because. You know, you'll, with the science thing, you'll realize that you have no clue. You won't even under, be able to read a sentence. But with the Talmud, you're going to end up drawing false conclusions. Because oh, wow. you don't know how, you don't know the way that the Torah thinks. You don't know the, the way that, 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 you know, the way that, that God laid everything out. You can, you get a certain, things make much more sense in the Talmud when you understand, you know, what you've read in, in Tanakh. That's such a good point, by the way, because I think this is a reason why people clutch so tightly to Maimonides, because he says, like, he gives, like, this rational, like, people think, like, you know, you sent me an article, people think of Maimonides as the rational pillar of Judaism, but Maimonides would agree that virtually every sage would say what he's saying in terms of what he's saying, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know if every sage agrees with him on that, but, like, the majority of sages hold the same thread of viewpoints as him, if you know what I mean, like, in terms of, like, you know, God doesn't actually have hands, and, you know, this and that. And right. Meaning regardless of their personal, per, their differences in personality, which accounted for massive differences in the way that they thought, everyone was still on the same page in terms of the, 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 broad, the broad ideas. Right. And why? Because they, were, because they were familiar with the source material. Like, and not just familiar with like the text and like, oh, you know, verse 32 says this, but that word is used differently in verse like, no, no, no. It was, wow, this all happened in the purview of the greatest, like, of the greatest evil that existed at the world. Like, the exodus happened, like we talked about, prayer was completely revolutionized. The idea of a rest day was completely revolutionized. You know, and this, this, all these things were such, were such, uh, let's, let's even call them big bangs in terms of history. You know, it's like, like, I think Heschel puts it this way. The God of the Jews is not a God of, uh, is not a God of space. He's not a God of, like, of what's it called of um, I don't know how to uh, I don't know what else like of personal like you know like, like he's not your a genie the god of the Jews is a god extremely tied into history you know extremely concerned with humanity's capability of altering history for the better or for the worse which is a very sophisticated ideology because it's not it's not saying that god has to pop up every five seconds to do a miracle it's saying that there is whatever for some greater purpose an idea that we have to earn the uh this world of uh, this let's let's not even say utopian let's just simply put a world in which we can cooperate despite our vast differences and for the better you know and without this idea of power like it can be done otherwise by the jewish view we we, we wouldn't be here like you know like it's just yeah, but it will only be done through the unification of the people only, only when people are unified in, 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 in understanding what, what the purpose of, of, of existence is. That's when universal peace will come, when everybody understands what we're all on the same page and we're all here for. When that's understood, mm-hmm. and I'm going to leave it, uh, I'm going to leave what it is blank because I think a lot of people would, you know, we can have a lot of different uh, opinions on, on what it is. And I think there's a lot of different ways of saying the same thing. At the end of the day, when, when, when we can make a dira petachtonim, a, a residence in the lower world, that's, what, that's really what we're here for. God, it, it, it's, it's very easy. God can you know, create angels and, and you know, be in, the, in the, you know, the highest of heavens, whatever you want to call it. But I think 
the idea can be understood by with like a, if you go to the car dealership and you wanted to test drive a car, like the most, the best way to test drive something is a condition or conditions in which it is very, very difficult. And yet there is still hope. You wouldn't take it on this, just, you know, down the road and you're just riding around the corner. You'd want to drive it, you know, somewhere where it would be tested. So, I mean, this world is, is the, the world where, you know, everything is physical and everything looks like there is, it doesn't look like there's a God. If you look around it, I mean, you can, some people see it. And when they look around, some people don't, it's not something that you can, you know, just say like, look right there, there it is. And they'd be like, Oh, you know, yeah, that is, you know, it's not so clear. And that's, that's the world where that's the world where, where particularly what God wants is that it's even though for all the angels, it's, and for all the spiritual beings, it's very easy for them to find God. It's, it's like a fly to light. Right. Mm-hmm. But for us, it, it, it's so much more meaningful when we don't have that perception and we can still come to, to know God and to, to forge some kind of connection with him. That's, that's ultimate meaning. Right. And, you know, I, I appreciate that you said that because I'm actually going to tie it into something that's going to be, I think, a little bit funny for you. Um, this idea that until we have a unified um, understanding of what, you know, peace and what the ultimate purpose is, I think that we're closer to that than ever, by the way. Like, I know that it seems like there's a lot of divide in this country and I, I really think that it's overhyped, you know, like I, I really, I really yeah, it makes things seem more crazy than it is. I do believe thoroughly that it's overhyped. You talk with people, like, you know, you open yourself up, people open themselves up. There's a lot of hope and trust me, if David knows me, if me, the ultimate pessimist is saying that it's more, more than likely, <laughs> more than likely uh, there's some validity to it as much as I don't want to admit it. But there is, um, why I'm bringing this up is because the show Avatar, The Last Airbender that I made you watch. (laughs) Um, It's interesting because I've seen review channels from all over the world watch Avatar. And I've seen, um, you know, and it's, it's really less true with their sister series, but universally speaking, when people watch Avatar, The Last Airbender, from what I've seen, I've seen so many different nationalities and so many different groups of people say, this is where we can get to with the world. Would we get our stuff together? You know, like, and again, like uh, I, I'm not making like a religious claim to it, but I'm saying that the fact that this many different types of people can understand this at these days is just unprecedented in history. Even in world war two, people did not understand how wrong essentially World War II is. People nowadays don't understand how messed up World War II was. People don't understand how messed up the Soviet Union was in the 20th century. Like how many people read the Gulag Archipelago? I'm in the middle of it and I'm freaking out every day. Like, Ooh, uh, please let me know how that is. Because I've always wanted to, but like... It's heavy. Yeah, I figured. It's very heavy. It's not like it's... It, you cannot just bruise through, peruse through it, I guess. It's, uh, it's quite heavy, but... Solzhenitsyn has a great way with words that just really, really paint a picture. And the gulag. Yeah, you know, the, the gulag. Gulag archipelago. And you know, he was, given a, he was given the rights to write a foreword on the new edition of the gulag archipelago. Oh, Hoshe Jordan. Yeah, it was like, if anybody needs to write one, I'm sure that it's him, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think he understands. I think uh, of all the people alive today, he might be one of the people who understands it. I, I don't even know. I don't know it. I just presume he understands it very well because he talks about it a lot. And, and anybody, if you're listening and you know who Jordan Peterson is, then you know, he he seems to know what he's talking about. Right, and um, it, it's so it, it's like this really unbelievable idea that nowadays we just have this 
I think that there's a larger understanding of world uh, of, you know, the purpose of existence and how necessary it is now than ever. Because as much as you want to peruse the channels of Reddit and see the nihilistic comments. 4chan. 4chan. I don't even mention that name, man. That name just scares me. I feel like when I say that name, the Illuminati just like pops up on my screen. I'm like, to finish this off, because I think this is this has been a great con- uh, conversation so far. And I think this will be a, a really cherry on top of the cake. If you put cherry on top of the cake, you put it on top of the ice cream. Cherry on what? Oh, I get ice cream, it goes on the Sunday, right? I don't know, man. I don't cherry on top of the Sunday. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I don't I don't eat ice cream that often. New York. Anyways, um, so like this is the last question. I think this is going to be really, really interesting. If you could witness any sage or historical Judaic figure put on the tefillin, and we'll assume that it was everybody from Moshe from Moses until now, who would it be? It's not a fair question. <laughs> it's not a fair question. You know, if you would tell me, you know, someone in the last five hundred years, that'd be more 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 interesting. But I mean, like, what makes you know? If I would choose Moshe and you would choose, you know, David or Aaron, or whatever, like, would any of us be wrong? Is there, would there be a wrong, like... I have a wrong answer. It's simply a, like, who would you think you would correlate with most, or who do you think would aid your tefillin wearing most? I think it, I think, I think it would have to be Moshe. I feel like everything, in terms of everything, it's Moshe. Because hmm. Moshe's the guy. Moshe's the one who got it directly from God. Everybody else just got it from Moshe. But I feel like that creates such a, and, well, I hesitate to say this, because I'm a str- stern believer in the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was human. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, I don't think anybody in Judaism doesn't believe that, but I think there is this um, idea of superheroifying him. No, that's what they did. That's Eliyahu and Navi. There's, there's, you know, where, where, where people became more than people. But Moshe, uh, Moshe, you know, did things that wasn't, you know, much more, it wasn't so human-like. But at the end of the day, there wasn't a question about whether he's an angel or not. I mean, he's a human. I'll tell you the truth. You, you know me. I'm, I am such a, I'm such a fanatic about King David. I, I, uh, I, I think if I, I had to see anybody um, in terms of what would help my observance, not, be, not for the uh, sociocultural similarities because they're really not, not many, but for the depth of feeling that, were he, that he were to have were he to know what we believe he, knowed about, what we believe he knew about the film. <clears throat> I would just, I would want to see the harp coming out at the same time he puts on his tefillin and start singing the Pesukit de Zimra, you know, even though it wasn't instituted, whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to be instituted. It was in his own personal notebook. Exactly, yeah. And there were probably way more prayers in there than we have now. Yep. Yeah, we lost lost a lot of them. I just, I can't imagine, you know, if I can't see, if I can't, if I can't see, if you can't see God, which you can't, you know, then the person that's in history, you know, that, the, you know, this is one of the 13 principles of the Rambam, right? Moshe's prophecy is he's the father of all prophets to those who came before and those who came after. He's the greatest of all prophets. And what that means is that there's no human being that's ever understood God more. And if that's the case, then, then, you know, I, I can't, I, to me, there's no, there's really no competition. And, and that's not, and that's not a, I would pay Every dollar I have to see David Amalek wearing tefillin. But if it was like David Amalek versus Moshe, or anybody versus Moshe, I mean, we're talking about you know this is Moshe. Moshe is 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 uh, I I don't know I, I 
I don't think feel like I can overstate this the impact. Just think about the impact one profit had on the entire world. Right. Entire the vast majority of, of the world's religion are just based on the words of one prophet. Moses. That's it. And and he was indisputed. No one disputes Moses' prophecy. All sorts of other prophecies are disputed, not Moses. What do you mean by that? Meaning the Christians and Muslims, they don't particularly care what, you know, it says in, in, in Malachim, Aleph, or Hosea, or Yeshaya. They care what Moses said. There's no more mentions of Moses in the Quran than any other prophet, by far. Mm-hmm. No, and then it was only the Christians that, you know, with Paul particularly, that kind of wanted to go away from Moshe because Moshe was the lawgiver. And they wanted to kind of, you know, go in a different direction. Right. Shift what was given. I don't know. Like, to me, I understand that there's this kinship to God that Moshe had that would be unbelievable to witness. But at the same time, I guess what I need to work on most is my kinship to humans. And um, I think that King David embodied the idea of, like, look, I know the Jews rebelled against Moshe constantly and constantly, but the Jews rebelled against King David so much. <laughs> and I cannot stress this enough. A town that he saved from the hands of the king turned him into the very king whose hands he saved them from. Which one was that? Nov? I don't know. I don't remember, no, honestly. No, no, everybody died in Nov. I don't remember, honestly, but no, 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 they, they stood up for him. I, I forgot, I forgot which town betrayed him, but I, I remember that there was a town. I think and, it was just Doeg. Didn't just Doeg show up and no, just No, it was it? a whole town. It was Doeg, but it was also a whole town. Uh, and it's one, it's in one of his Psalms. Um, I just read, I think it's like somewhere between uh, Psalm 60 and Psalm Yeah, 60. like half of the, of the Tillam are about him being betrayed. Honestly, it's, it's terrifying. And the, like, but to me, like the fact that he still had this love for, the Israelites and for the Jewish people, um, despite all that, and not only despite of, but I would say because of his kinship to God, he was able to override his human drive to, let's say, feel resentment. He felt that kinship towards people. I just don't think, I think Moshe had, but I don't think that Moshe displayed as thoroughly as he did. That was more of Aaron's role. Aaron was more of the peacemaker. Right, right. As far as, right, as, far as we know, that's, that was more Aaron's role. Yeah, and and that that was uh you know he's the the what's the word the progenitor of of like of of kind of that you know they mourned Aaron much more than Moshe yeah, because crazy fact Aaron was like the ultimate marriage counselor he was responsible for keeping everybody's marriages together people would go to people would go to him with all their problems and all their fights and he would just work everything out he would I think mm-hmm. they say that you know one the two people would be fighting. And each one would go to him separately. And he would tell each one, your friend, the other guy, he's waiting for you in the street. He wants to apologize to you. And he tell it to both of them. So when they come meet each other in the street, they both think that the other is like, wants to apologize. So then they both come up and apologize because they think the other one's going to apologize. Oh, wow. And he's yeah, just yeah, making peace that. without them even – just like he ends the fight. And like how did he do it? He just like, oh, he wants to make peace because he really does. That's people really do want to make peace. He wasn't lying. He just – people need to feel safe when they make peace. And in order to feel safe, you need to think that the other person is, is going to reciprocate. I 100% I agree with you. But in terms of the last couple hundred years, who I'd want to see wearing film, it's got to be the Vilna Gaon. Really? I Why? told you the story with the Vilna Gaon? No, say it. I, I think it. I did. Um, there's a Gemara that talks about um, that the nations will see 
that the name of God is written upon you and they will fear you. Right? The Gemara says, This is talking about the tefillin of the head, right? That they'll see the name of God written upon your tefillin and they will fear you. So the story goes that there's some Tamidim of, of um, Vilnagon, and at that time they wore tefillin all day, I think. Um, and some of his Tamidim were being uh, harassed by some thugs or whoever. Mm-hmm. And they're wearing their tefillin and they're being harassed. And the Vilna Gon at one point shows up, you know, and wearing his tefillin as well. And as the story goes, the, the, the thugs kind of like squeaked. They like, it was like a, a like a, like cried out in like a, in like a terrified prepubescent girl voice. That was kind of the understanding. How it was like just utter, you know, when you scream and like almost no noise comes out, like that kind of scream, like in a horror oh, movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was the way the story went that they utterly just they, they lost it and they and they booked and they ran away. So the obvious question is, and the Tamidim asked the Vilnagon, "We're wearing tefillin too. They weren't scared of us." And I wish I remember the punchline. I, I, it was something along the lines of, "It's not just wearing the tefillin. You have to. It's it's Hashem Hashem Nikra Alecha. It's like the name is Hashem is upon you, not just the tefillin being upon you. Really, to to really connect with your tefillin and have the that." The understanding that the name of God is upon you and to act accordingly, that people can see. That's tangible. Mm-hmm. That's, some people are, are just godly people. They put, they put the fear of God in you. That's what they say. But there's certain people that you just see them and, and you know, it, 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 it's, it's a sight to behold. That's for sure. If, if, you were gonna, if we're going to jump to the in the previous, let's say millennial, whatever, let's say post-Talmudic times, it'd have to be a tie between Bachia Ibn Pakuda and uh, the Rambam. And mainly because they their commentary, I think, says it all. In a paragraph, they said more than most people say in a lifetime. You know, they said that listen, there's just there's just so much you can learn from, you know, putting on the tefillin. And like I think this thing we talked about today, like uh, how you said that you should learn some Torah with them on, because like again, having a religious artifact on you when learning something that we consider sacred is so much it's so much easier first of all to give you a little bit of a focus but it's also so much uh, it's also much more meaningful once you let it be you know like uh, virtual antenna yeah like I, I i go on the subway like for an hour and a half each day now right and as much as i try to learn there like you know and i try to learn tanakh and like all this it's the environment of the subway it's yeah. not an environment, you know, that you, you learn, like you can be, you can be as spiritually endowed. It's probably questionable whether you're even permitted to with all the urine smell over there. So I'm lucky that I can't smell that well right now. <laughs> but uh, not because of COVID, just because my nostrils you're are... not drinking enough tea. Um, excuse me. You need to drink more tea, Zuko. <laughs> uncle, uncle, uncle. <laughs> I have to restore my honor. Just Zuko. Your honor is within you. Let's have some tea. This tea is just hot leaf juice. This is going to be hilarious for anybody who's watched it and everyone else is going to be like, what are, what are they doing? <laughs> I think the majority of the world has watched Avatar by now. Or a majority of America, to be fair. Yeah, you think so? It's, it was on Netflix trending for 52 days. The highest trend, 57, I think. Highest trending show in Netflix ever had. All right, I think this was one of the better... You know, one of the one of the really great discussion episodes. Yeah, it's good. I think all the discussion episodes are good. So what's next? Um, I think next is meat and milk.
That's right. That's right. Buster Mikhailov. Yeah. Can we have chicken and a milkshake that brings all the boys to the yard? I still haven't found a good answer for why chicken is, is it doesn't look anything like meat. I, I, if the explanation is that chicken is easily confused with meat, I think the closest I could find that looked like chicken was maybe veal. But even that, I mean, you can kind of tell. The veal wasn't that widespread back then either. That's also true. Um, so we'll have to, we're going to, you're going to have to give us some time to do uh, do more research. And when we get back, we'll have uh, all sorts of new fun stuff for you. Yes. And may you all be inscribed. And in you know what? I don't want to say this cliche. I hope you're obviously all inscribed in the book of life, but may, let's see, may, uh, you, you give a wish for now for the, <laughs> I'm going to think. Well, if, if, if you're listening to this before Rosh Hashanah, before the, the the new year, then oh no, they won't be. I'm uploading it next week. I just realized before. Yom uh, well, before Yom Kippur, yeah. Well, um, I think it's important to remember that Yom Kippur is not a sad day. Uh, I think it, it can be somber in a way because you know there's a certain level of of you know regret that people have for things that they that they've done, but it's the Gemara says that you know there's no uh, said that Yom Kippur is the happiest day of the year. There's no greater day than the day that you're guaranteed, as long as you come in there genuinely, you're, you're almost guaranteed. I don't want to say guaranteed. I don't want to, you know, but it, you're, 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 you will find favor. You will find favor in God's eyes. Just come in there genuinely. Come in there real. Don't be afraid. And just, you know, be honest. Be real. And, and don't pretend to be something that you're not. Don't say, Hashem, next year I'm not going to do any of theirs. Just try to be better better tomorrow than you are today and better the next day and that that's really all you can do that was that was an amazing blessing and i hope it comes true for everybody who's experiencing yom kippur this year and i just want to add that i hope that we all merit to be reasons that the that the age of miss uh, the the age of morality that should hopefully come soon in our days I mean, that we should be a always help bring it closer and never be a hindrance to it. And um, I think that if we acknowledge that we're just human and we're going to try our best, I think that's good enough for us on Yom Kippur. Absolutely. Well said. All right. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us this week, guys and gals, whoever you may be from all across the world. We have some viewers, some listeners in, in, in India, was it? Yeah, we had some listeners in India. That was pretty intense. Yeah. So all, all you people across the world, thanks for tuning in. Peace. Thank you so much. And if you have any questions, feel free to contact us. Delve deeper at genuinejudaism.org. All right, everybody. Nice.